September 16th, 2015, Huntsville, Alabama. A real estate agent receives a phone call in the early hours of the morning. A phone call that would derail her successful career, destroy friendships and relationships, and take years to go to trial. A post on the internet had been published which accused this real estate agent of undergoing unprofessional and sexual acts in the homes that she sells. In this Curious Case episode, we're going to explore what exactly happens on that September day and get expert opinion from a good friend of mine, Dr. Sohan Das, who is a consultant forensic psychiatrist. All that and more coming right up. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. Unit 2, move into position. Units 3 and 4, maintain The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve into this episode, I'd just like to give a massive thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this video. Now, my regular viewers will know that Magellan TV has been a constant supporter of this channel and so many other true crime channels. And as I say every time, we really wouldn't be able to make the content that we do without their help. So don't hesitate to go show them some love and check out their extensive library of interesting documentaries, ranging from true crime, history, science, space, and even nature shows. Magellan TV was created by filmmakers and their producers, alongside talented curators, to ensure that each and every documentary on their service is the most premium that you can find. The lovely people over at Magellan TV have provided me a little preview of the documentary I've been watching this week, The Family Who Vanished. Let's take a look. Ah, Dave, hello. Nina, 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 Nina. 18-month-old Davinda and his baby brother Ravinda were the sons of successful businessman Neil Chowan. Hello. <laughs> With a loving marriage to his wife Nancy, Neil had everything a man could want. <laughs> but in February 2003, just two days after this film was shot, all five members of this happy family simply disappeared. A family vanishes, a company is stolen, and the police are tricked. It's a documentary full of twists and turns, so after you've jumped over to Magellan TV and watched it, I'd love if you could drop a comment on this video or send me a tweet or Instagram DM with your opinions and thoughts. Use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments to bag yourself a one-month free trial to Magellan TV, including all of their 4K documentaries at no extra cost. Now, back to the case. Monica Glennon was born on the 20th of August 1970 in a small town in Poland. Her family struggled financially in communist Poland, but they worked hard to ensure they would be able to improve the lives of the children and the generations that followed. Monica's childhood was relatively uneventful. 
Though shortly after graduation from high school, Monica decided to move to the United States for her gap year before going on to university. While she was in the United States, Monica fell in love with not just the country, but also a military man who she would go on to marry. Monica and her husband ultimately brought two children into the world, and the future for the young family seemed bright. As a result of Monica's husband's military job, the young family found themselves moving frequently and to locations all over the world. In the early 2000s, Monica and her family moved to the area of Huntsville, Alabama, after Monica's husband had been stationed at the Redstone Arsenal military base there. The family didn't stay in Huntsville for very long, though they stayed long enough for Monica to fall in love with the city and the area. And so, as a result of this, shortly after Monica's husband left the military, the family settled down in Huntsville and moved to the city in around 2003. Monica, who had trained as a real estate agent when the family had been stationed in California, obtaining her license there in 1999, quickly found work in the city. The couple's two children settled in easily at schools in the city, would actually grow up and go on to work in the military just like their father did. Monica and her husband, as with every marriage, had their ups and downs, but they were also seen to be a team, always the pair of them against the problem and never one against the other. It appeared that Monica had found the American dream and her real estate job quickly began to take off. That was until the early hours of the 16th of September, 2015, a day that would devastate Monica, her family, her business, and the fallout from this day she would still feel years later. Between the hours of 5 and 6 a.m., Monica stirred from her sleep to the sound of her mobile phone going off. She glanced at the lock screen of her phone to see that her broker had been the person trying to get a hold of her. Monica's broker trying to contact her in the early hours of the morning was something very out of the ordinary. It was something that had never happened before. And Monica was not a morning person and so decided that whatever her broker had to say to her could wait until the morning, rolled over in bed and tried to go back to sleep. Honestly, I would do the exact same thing. But a phone kept ringing. And it wasn't just phone calls that kept coming in. Text messages began to light up Monica's phone. Annoyed at the commotion that kept waking her up, Monica looked at her phone again and angrily thought, what the hell does she want? Her broker had blown up her phone with notifications. It sounds bad, but I like to sleep with Do Not Disturb switched on because... I need my beauty sleep, you know, I need to sleep. I don't like being disturbed, so I completely relate to Monica right now. Shattered and not wanting to miss out on vital sleep before work, thinking nothing can be this important at work for them to contact her now. It can wait until she gets to work the next morning. And so Monica switched her mobile phone off and tried to get back to sleep. Though Monica's attempts to go back to sleep didn't last long. The family's landline house phone suddenly began ringing, and in defeat, Monica got out of bed and answered the annoying call. Monica angrily asked her broker on the other end of the line what the hell could be happening that would warrant phoning her so excessively and so early in the morning. Monica's broker simply replied by telling her that she needed to check her mobile phone 
and read the text messages that had been sent to her. Text messages that would shatter her world. Monica's broker informed her that somebody had written something about her online, and that something was very bad. Monica's mind quickly turned to thinking that maybe a client had a bad experience with her and had left an unsavory review online. But she didn't really understand why her broker had called her so early. It can't have been that bad, could it? Oh boy, was she wrong. A post had been made on Monica's local Remax Facebook group. Remax, if you aren't aware, is an international real estate company that operates through a franchise system. It has more than 100,000 real estate agents in 6,800 offices and operates in around 100 countries across the planet. It's effectively a central hub for independent estate agents to get business and it operates in a way which allows estate agents to earn more money, generating revenue through office space rentals instead of brokerage fees. Needless to say, Remax is a reputable place for sellers and buyers to go on to enter the property markets. And so a negative review against one of their estate agents is taken fairly seriously as it affects the brand's reputation. And so Monica's broker, who works for her local Remax, told her that she had to take a look at the review. In frustration and rolling her eyes somewhat, Monica said fine and opened the text messages from her broker. You see, the broker had sent Monica screenshots of what had been posted. As Monica began to read what had been posted, her jaw dropped in shock and disbelief. The post on the Facebook page was about a story that had been published about Monica on the website she'sahomewrecker.com. She's a Homewrecker was a website where users could post expose stories about people that had wronged them to warn others about them. It's usually about somebody who has ruin their marriage, ruin their family home, that kind of thing, all about centered on cheating and affairs. And it was part of a toxic and ugly part of the internet where users gossip and hide behind their anonymous keyboards. The post read, Monica Glennon was recommended to my husband and I as a reputable realtor when we were new to Huntsville, Alabama and were looking to buy a home. My husband's job relocated us to North Alabama. Monica works for a large local realtor branch. My husband and I initially met with her to go over our specific needs slash wants and budgets of our prospective new home. We rented an apartment and enrolled our two children in school while we house hunted. Monica showed us around eight to 10 homes. And while we still had not found the perfect house for us, we were pleased she was working so hard to help us find our home. In the meantime, I found a job and was settling into my responsibilities there. We had a last minute appointment with Monica to show us a house that was for sale, but had not yet been put on the market. There was a glitch at work for me and I could not get away. I called my husband and told him to go ahead and view the house as I could not get away. The post goes on to say that the husband agreed to go to the viewing alone, but the wife actually had her meeting at work cancelled and was able to go after all. So she went over to the house to join her husband and Monica for the viewing, albeit a little bit late. I arrived at the home and went to the front door. I saw my husband's car and Monica's car out front, so I knew they were there. The door was unlocked. 
As I entered the home, I wandered around the first floor, making notes about the granite countertops in the kitchen, the gas stove, gas fireplace, etc. All of that probably took around five minutes. I figured they, her husband and Monica, were in the backyard. I went upstairs with a pen and phone in hand, making notes and taking pictures to refer to later. When I walked into the master bedroom, my heart stopped. There on the plush white carpet was my husband and our realtor, Monica Scott Glennon. I was frozen for a moment. My feet felt like lead weights. They didn't even notice me standing there as my husband finished doing sexual things um, on her, with her. I immediately composed myself and started snapping pictures of both of them naked and obviously engaging in intercourse. Then I started screaming. I honestly can't remember what I was screaming about. I was so upset. I'm sure it was a string of expletives. I got pictures on my phone of her and my husband completely naked with her on top doing things. The more of them both in various stages of putting their clothes back on as well. I just got out of there as quickly as possible after that. I know she thought I was going to call her boss and try to get her fired, but I didn't. I didn't for the following reasons. Monica Scott Glennon had no obligation to me. I was nobody to her. It was my husband who had commitments to me, to our children. He married me. He took vows to be my husband and to forsake all others. He was the problem in this scenario. If he had not been willing to cheat on me, she wouldn't have been riding him. Oh, I hate that I have to say that in a video. Don't get me wrong, she knew he was married. She was a nasty who didn't care. She was guilty of being a disgusting skank of a woman, one who will go after your husband if she finds him attractive. In brackets, I believe she is married as well. The pictures I snapped seals the face of this situation. I made my husband move out. I met with an attorney the next week and filed for divorce. The pictures I took of them made my divorce go very well for me. I got everything. I got every dime of the sale equity of our previous home. I got child support and alimony too. I didn't just get even, I got it all. Low down, sorry ass husband. I'm posting this because I want to warn other women about this woman and encourage you to stay away from her. Do not use this woman as a realtor, Monica Scott Glennon. She's a person without remorse or moral compass. She's the enemy of decent women everywhere but I've come out better than okay. My divorce was final two months ago. I just bought a nice home for me and our children. I'm going to be just fine. I want to thank the creators of this site. You are providing a platform for women to come together and to comfort and warn each other about women like Monica Scott Glennon. Love to you, ladies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
obviously there are some parts of that that I didn't read out because it made me feel very uncomfortable. Kind of like when you're watching a movie and your parents are there and you're all watching a movie together and then a sex scene comes on and you feel extremely uncomfortable and all you want to do is fade away into the void and vanish and melt away. That's how I felt reading that out. Um, so sorry that I skipped over parts of that, but it was on the screen if you wanted to read it. Um, but oh, no thank you. Um, very graphic. No. Monica's heart dropped reading these screenshots. Attached to the post was a picture of Monica taken from her professional website. This picture from the professional website would come in quite important later, so we'll come back to that. Now, this poster claimed to have naked pictures of Monica, though the poster did not post these naked pictures anywhere, even if they were blurred or anything like that as proof. Monica's contact information was further added to the post and it spread like wildfire. It was posted on Monica's business Facebook page. Links were sent to her husband and family members, even to her friends. In a state of shock and panic, Monica began to rush through all of her previous clients, her mind twisting as she started to doubt her own memory. Had she actually done this? Of course not, she, she thought. It, it wouldn't be something you just forget about. She knew that this post was a lie, complete fabrication. That's what it was. But the general public, her family, her friends, her husband, her kids, would they believe the lie? Her mind raced through the potential reactions of those who she loved. Her marriage could end. She could lose custody of her kids. Her business could collapse and fail all because of one fictitious post on the internet. But why? Why was this happening to her? Who was behind it? What had she done to deserve this? Monica jumped back over to the Facebook post on her local Remax's page and began to take a look at the person who had posted it, Ryan Baxter. However, as she began to investigate who Ryan Baxter exactly was going on his account, she soon realized that the Ryan Baxter Facebook account wasn't a real person at all, it was a fake account. It also quickly became clear that Ryan Baxter hadn't been the author of the post on she'saHomeRecord.com, as that post had been made by a woman. This fake account had simply reposted it on Facebook, and then also decided to send it to Monica's friends and family. Monica began to question the people all around her. Who had done this to her? Was it a competitor trying to put her out of business? A disgruntled client? It was impossible to discern. It was still 6am in the morning. Monica's husband was still fast asleep in the other room as Monica's world began to crumble around her. And so Monica decided to wake up her husband and show him what had been posted. Even though the contents of the posts were completely fake, she would rather he learn of the post through her rather than from checking his phone and seeing the Facebook messages from Ryan Baxter. Monica's husband became furious, not at Monica, but at whoever was slandering her name. Monica's marriage was one of trust and love, and her husband knew that there was no way that it could be true. There'd been nothing to cause suspicion, no red flags, and Monica was so busy running her business that she barely had time to eat, let alone cheat. Her husband would later say that sometimes it was almost as if he had to book a meeting with Monica just to talk to her about things because she was so busy. So he knew that she did not have time to be doing this. Monica and her husband realized that it was still early on in the day. Most people were still asleep, and if they acted fast enough and had the post taken down before anyone could awake, there'd be no fallout. 
But what they didn't realize at that point was just how difficult it is to get a website to remove content like that. Monica and her husband even began to question their own kids. Had their kids posted this fake story to get back at them for something out of anger? They began to question every relationship in their lives. Monica spent the following weekend scouring through her emails, trying to see if she could find anything that could indicate who might have done this, any disgruntled client from years ago, anyone who might have said something a bit off or that she had said something that could be taken the wrong way. But she found absolutely nothing. The post seemed to have no obvious trigger to it at all, no justification. Now, Monica's business had been doubling in revenue every year up until this post. So the theory that a competitor had posted it to knock her down quickly worked its way to the forefront of her mind. Had she said something offhand to a competitor? Had she said something that had been taken the wrong way to a competitor? So many questions and so few answers. And unfortunately, Monica's business would feel the devastating effects of these fake allegations almost instantly. Huntsville, Alabama is located in the Bible Belt of America, and adultery, especially between two married people, was heavily frowned upon, and it was something that nobody wanted to be associated with. Monica's listings almost immediately began to be removed by clients and being relisted with her competitors. Her typically busy phone stops ringing with potential clients wanting to sell or buy a home through her and switch to phone calls from people who had seen the post selling her hate or even trying to solicit sex with her. Monica experienced a multitude of phone calls from men who thought that all they had to do was book a viewing with her and it would end with them having sex. Men would phone her and just breathe heavily down the phone, likely pleasuring themselves as they did so. Disgusting. And Monica couldn't just change her number or take her contact information down, as her real estate business relied on her having a presence online to get new clients and to make money. Though now, when those clients googled her name, the fake post accusing her of adultery was all that would come up. In the meantime, Monica was desperately trying to get these websites to take down the fake posts, but was having no success at all. She would later admit that her naivety about websites and how they're run played a massive role in her anger. She quickly learned that you can't just ask a website to remove a post. It's not that simple. Many of them required a court order to actually have the posts removed. Monica's emails to these websites and to these companies would go unreplied or that she'd get a reply saying that they'd look into the case and never hear from them again. So Monica knew that she needed a court order and a court order is something that takes a long time to ascertain. Monica and her attorneys attempted to send cease and desist letters to the websites hosting these posts, but they also got no response back. As Monica desperately tried to get the post removed, other websites began to pick up on the story and started posting the fake story as if it were true on their websites too. It was like a virus spreading through the internet and gossip groups in Alabama. And like in a game of telephone, these regurgitated stories began to morph and add more details, with some websites even posting spin-off stories based on the original post. It was getting completely out of control and Monica was helpless. She felt like there was absolutely nothing that she could do to stop it. And she soon began to worry for her safety and the safety of her family. So Monica began to carry a firearm with her wherever she went 
just in case of an emergency. Her now tainted reputation made her fear that some men would see her as an easy ride, an object, and try to assault her. Monica also installed a CCTV surveillance system around her house for added protection. The attorney that she had gone to for help began to send in legal requests to try to figure out the name of the person who had posted this slanderous story against her. And it would take a whole year and a hundred thousand US dollars in attorney fees for the identity of the original poster to be revealed. Now, in order for Monica's attorneys to get this identity, they had to file a lawsuit. And so in 2016, Monica filed a lawsuit against John Doe's, alleging libel and copyright infringement, as the fake story had used her professional headshots, which she had the ownership over. It's very important to take notes that she based the lawsuit around this copyright infringement because copyright infringement cases go fairly quickly through the court system so she knew this would be a good way to try and get these posts taken down the quickest way because she owns the copyright of the professional headshot that had been reposted she knew she was in for a chance of at least getting her picture removed it was through this lawsuit that the identity of the original poster was revealed 42 year old molly rosenblum and what's most interesting here is that molly and monica had never met never crossed paths in person they were complete strangers to one another. Molly Rosenblum lived in Athens, Alabama, which was about a 45 minute to 60 minute drive away from Huntsville, where Monica lived. So why had this complete stranger fabricated a story about Monica? To answer that question, we have to wind the clock back to 2014. On the 20th of June, 2014, 18 year old Alabama teenager, Brianna Mitchell, posted a selfie on Twitter. Now I know what you're thinking, so what? Everyone posts selfies online, especially teenagers. But this is a selfie that would garner a lot of backlash from the online community and even in the mainstream media, in the press. You see, in the background of this picture, those are historical buildings. Buildings that belong to the Auschwitz concentration camp. I'm sure I don't need to emphasize how such a massive controversy surrounding this smiling selfie in front of a concentration camp was formed. Heated arguments popped up across social media, with some defending Brianna as just being a teenager and making a mistake, with others calling her a sympathizer. It wasn't long before the post made its way to the WHMT News 19 Facebook page, a local news station in Huntsville, Alabama. The post asked its viewers to share their thoughts. Do you think it's wrong for the team to take a selfie at Auschwitz? And almost immediately, the comment section beneath the post flooded with arguments. And it was beneath this post that Monica would make a comment that would unknowingly see a complete stranger try to ruin her life. Monica commented beneath the Facebook post about this teenage girl's selfie defending her. According to an article by Kashmir Hill on gizmodo.com, she said that kids make mistakes, that at least she was visiting the historical sites, and that the hateful frenzy against her by an internet mob shows the same judgmental and senseless pack mentality that led to this horrific time in history to begin with. In response to Monica's comments on the post, Molly Rosenblum responded with disagreement. Molly said that Auschwitz was a somber place for reflection and was not an appropriate place to take selfies. She further identified herself as being of Jewish descent and suggested that others didn't have a full grasp of the Holocaust. 
Though Monica responded back to Molly saying that Auschwitz is in her place and that it belongs to all and was a former killing zone of all, including originally Polish people. Now, as we know, Monica was born and raised in Poland and she had actually visited Auschwitz on numerous occasions to pay her respects. Monica could actually identify where in Auschwitz the teenager had been standing where she had taken the selfie and I'd actually further read up on the teenager's backstory. Allegedly, the teenager and her father had been World War II buffs, and they had always wanted to visit the concentration camp so that they could fully grasp the gravity of what happens there. Sadly, though, the teenager's father passed away from cancer before the father-daughter duo could ever visit Auschwitz. And so the reason the teenager had been smiling in the selfie was because she was like, look, dad, I finally made it here. It, she was completing a kind of like a goal that she had with her father, if that makes sense. And Monica felt sorry for the teenager who had never intended for her selfie to blow up in the way that it had. I wanted to simply defend her. Molly Rosenblum took Monica's defense of the teenager as her defending a nasty and grew so offended by Monica's comments that she decided to fabricate this story about Monica using Monica's publicly available information and post it to she'sahomewrecker.com. It's important to note though that submissions to websites such as she'sahomewrecker.com can actually take months, months? Can actually take months to appear on the website. And as it would later transpire, after Molly wrote the story and submitted it, she completely forgot about it. She didn't give it a second thought. A story that blew up Monica's life, lost her hundreds of thousands of dollars, damaged her professional and personal reputation all over a Facebook comment. It wouldn't be until that fateful September 2015 day, all over a year after the Facebook argument had occurred, that the fake story would actually be posted online. Though this fake story fabricated by Molly likely wouldn't have gone very far if Ryan Baxter, the fake Facebook account, hadn't taken it upon themselves to repost the story across the internet and send it via email and Facebook Messenger to Monica's husband, colleagues and friends. The lawsuits that Monica had filed revealed the true identity of Ryan Baxter, another stranger from Oxnard, California, who was called Hannah Lepian. It's important to note that when Hannah Lepian was served with a legal notice concerning the lawsuits, she actually deleted her accounts from the internet and Monica hasn't heard from her since. When Molly got wins of the lawsuits, she immediately emailed Monica's attorneys, doubling down on what she'd said. Now the email itself is a little bizarre, but this is what she says. I'm saddened and grieved for Mrs. Glennon's disrupted life and the pain I've caused for her and those who love her. Inactive mental illness and addiction, I've said things and done some things for which I regret. Internet trolling on her part is no excuse for the malicious lie I wrote about her. She did not deserve it. At the time, I felt attacked, and she simply hurt my feelings by not being kind with her words. I would have availed myself sooner had I been aware she was seeking my identity. At the very least, my public retraction of that story. I've suffered with lifelong documented mental illness. I self-medicated in desperation and became further unstable. I was in the throes of methamphetamine addiction when I did this horrid act, wrote this lie. I wish mere words could adequately convey the depths of the sorrow to have hurt her as I have. I'm unable to work and have been hospitalized many times throughout my life because of my illness. As a young woman, my husband, Brian Alviso, 
committed suicide in my presence, which exasperated the symptoms of my illness. Since I became aware of Mrs. Glennon seeking a retraction, I've considered what and how I could make this right. I own nothing and live on a small disability check. I have no means to monetarily compensate Mrs. Glennon for her loss of business, she claims. I will commit to buy one lottery ticket per month for the rest of my life and split the winnings with Mrs. Glennon. I am fully willing to sign any documentation that will eliminate cached data from any and all websites containing references to the original post. I did not spread the story all over the internet. I shared it to one site only. As I've researched this issue over the past days, I've become aware of someone, presumably a man, who shadowed my story. Perhaps he knows her himself. Perhaps Mrs. Glennon attacked, aka trolled him on the internet as well. But that's merely conjecture on my part. I somehow doubt he had any involvement in our difference in opinion on the news story that precipitated my made-up lie. There aren't a lot of Jewish people in this area. I sometimes feel isolated in my lineage as a result. I'm well studied in World War II Holocaust issues. Mrs. Glennon made light of Jewish suffering in her response and initiated dialogue with me to my comments. Veiled anti-Semitism hurts. I've faced it many times, a chubby Jewish kid with epilepsy and glasses in the deep south. I refrained from expressing that publicly. Somehow, it seems my doing so would not serve to make Mrs. Glennon whole, but rather hurt her reputation further, to be cleared as an adulterous slut yet outed as a Polish immigrant anti-Semite, hardly seems a desirable trade. Anything I can do to ease Mrs. Glennon's pain, anger or loss, I'm fully and wholeheartedly willing to cooperate. However, I will protect myself by making that initial contact public, should Mrs. Glennon care to continue a public campaign of this matter. I could argue that she has received a million dollars in reality sympathy advertising as a result of this case, I do not wish to shroud my life with this negative, unforgiving energy, which is why I seek an amicable way to satisfy Mrs. Glennon. I have $54 in my checking, of which I generously will turn over to Mrs. Glennon. I have no money to hire counsel to answer her complaint. I can't compensate her perceived financial loss. I have a 20-year-old van that barely runs, and a little boy about to turn 12 years old on Tuesday. I saved money for two months to buy him a birthday gift. Today, I am truly happy. I make amends to those I've wronged when the opportunity presents itself. I see a therapist and attempt to navigate through the wreckage of my past. I used to believe life had not been kind to me. Today, I find great joy in the azaleas I just planted and hopeful the blueberry bushes I recently adopted will bear fruit, if only just a small bit. Today, life is what I make of it. I find great peace each day in a relationship with God. And there is my answer to her complaints. This email was also posted to Facebook by Molly. And Monica was horrified. It still contains horrible things written about her, claiming Monica to be an anti-Semite. As a result of this, Monica decided to reach out to Molly directly via Facebook. Monica told Molly that this had gone too far and asked her whether she wanted to meet up so they could figure it all out. And as Molly didn't live too far away from Monica, they settled on a restaurant in Athens for their meeting. Monica traveled to the meeting with her husband with the plan that her husband wait across the street in the car with the gun just in case things go south. Monica was truly scared of Molly. 
but Molly, a complete stranger, had cost her hundreds of thousands of dollars and Monica needed this to end. The meeting between Molly and Monica lasted for four hours. And Monica learned that Molly believed Monica to have been some mean, rich bitch with no understanding of Auschwitz. And after the meeting, Molly did an affidavit admitting to everything she had done. Now, what's most interesting in this lawsuit is that the primary basis of it, as we discussed earlier, was the copyright infringement of Mo Monica's professional headshots. Without that complaint, the lawsuit likely would have taken far longer to go to trial. On the 19th of September, 2017, Two years after the fake post was published, Molly posted a comment on one of the websites that still had the fake story up. It read, I am unable to remove the comment above about this woman. Monica Glennon being anti-Semitic. After meeting with her in person today, I am convinced I was terribly wrong about what I perceived at the time as anti-Semitism. I was wrong to have posted this and fabricated the story about her on she'sahomerecord.com. This behavior on my part has damaged Mrs. Glennon's personal and professional life as well. It is my deepest desire to rectify my former sentiments and set that right that indeed Mrs. Glennon is not an anti-Semite and I deeply apologize for the harm my slanderous words have caused her, her husbands and friends. Mrs. Glennon is in fact a kind and compassionate person with whom I share many common values. Please accept my deepest regrets for the harm I have brought to the lives of her and those whom love her. It's important to note that the lawsuit had also been brought against Hannah Lupien, though I believe Hannah didn't respond to it. Three years after the initial post had been made, the court found its conclusion in the lawsuits, and the court ruled in Monica's favour on her claim of copyright infringement for the use of the professional headshot, her claim for libel, her claim for invasion of privacy, her claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress, and her claim for tortious interference with business relations. In 2014, the year before the post would be published, Monica had earned $65,511.24 via her estate agency business. This had followed an upward trend from the years prior, though in 2015, after the post about Monica was posted, Monica only earned $10,012.38. In 2016, Monica earned $12,437.61. In 2017, as a result of the emotional distress, Monica began to see a psychiatrist for depression treatments. That same year, as the fabricated story began to fade from people's memories and after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to have it removed from search engine listings, Monica earned $180,524.30. These earnings were all taken into account when deciding on the final judgment. The final judgment was ordered on the 18th of December 2018 and it read, Based on the limited information that Mrs. Glennon had provided about her mental anguish, and based upon the fact that her income level recovered substantially in 2017, minimizing at least one source of anxiety, the court awards Mrs. Glennon $100,000 in mental anguish damages. Therefore, the court awards a total of $219,425 in compensatory damages. It was also ordered for the websites hosting the story to remove the fake posts. You see the court had ordered in the lawsuit when it was won for Molly and Hannah to pay up her business losses as well. So that's where the other money came into it. But out of this lawsuit, she was awarded a substantial amount of money. 
Monica, after three years, had won this battle. That had all started over a Facebook comment. But that's not where this story ends. While this lawsuit was ongoing, Molly Rosenblum was actually arrested and charged with kidnapping. Athens police say that at around 2pm on the 12th of October 2016, they found the victim running down Market Street. The victim told the police that he had been bound and held against his will for nearly 12 hours. The police go on to say that the victim had been injured and threatened with deadly force. As it turns out, Molly Rosenblum and an acquaintance had kidnapped this man due to a dispute over money. But wait, it gets a bit more intense. The police then learned that Molly had kidnapped somebody else back in August of 2016, after Molly had noticed some of her narcotics had gone missing. As a result of all of this, multiple charges are brought against Molly and her acquaintance, and she was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment, which began in November of 2017. Molly will be eligible for parole in 2024. Monica, on the other hand, is grateful that she was able to find closure in the horrific defamation that she faced. She knows that if she hadn't had the financial backing to fight it, she would still be feeling the severe consequences to this day. She also knows that she will likely never see any of the money that she won from the lawsuit. Though she isn't too fussed about this, she only wanted the lawsuits to be there and to win it so that the, all these websites would take down these posts and that she could clear her reputation. The lesson to learn from all of this, stop getting into fights with strangers on the internet. It may seem harmless, but there might be another Molly Rosenblum out there. I wanted to find out what could potentially have been going on psychologically for Molly Rosenblum, so I spoke with Dr. Sahon Das from A Psych for Sore Minds. His YouTube channel is linked in the description. And I asked him to give us his expert opinion on this case. Hello, cruel world. My name is Dr. Shaham Das. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist. I regularly assess mentally disordered offenders in courts and in prisons and in secure psychiatric units. I host a YouTube channel called The Site for Sore Minds, which dissects like a whole range of mental health topics, some of which are related to offending and some which aren't. I thought this was a very unique case and I thought it'd be interesting to do like a psychological breakdown of the perpetrators as well as the victim. Now, obviously I can't definitively diagnose anybody without assessing them in person. However, I can tell you theoretical possibilities based on my professional expertise and my experience of similar cases. Firstly, let's look at Rosenblum who originally submitted the post about Glennon on the site, She's a Homewrecker. So we know that Rosenblum is a single mother with two sons. We know she had a methamphetamine addiction. We also know that more recently, since this whole fiasco, she's been imprisoned. Another telling aspect, I think, is that after the legal case started, Rosenblum apologised to Glennon's solicitors. She stated, and I quote, While Miss Glennon is not an adulterous woman to my knowledge, she is guilty, in my opinion, of Facebook trolling the wrong person. How ominous. Although we shouldn't forget that, Rosen, that Rosenblum and Glennon reconciled fully later after they actually met each other in person. So all of these behaviours and attitudes indicate to me that Rosenblum has a number of very strong, likely problematic personality traits. And I wonder if she might cross the threshold for a personality disorder, as opposed to like a mental illness. So the difference is this. A personality disorder is like entrenched and pervasive, so it's like a flaw in somebody's character. It's actually like an issue with who they are fundamentally. As opposed to a mental illness, such as a period of psychosis, 
which is a break from reality. So Rosenblum has potential features of borderline personality disorder. So people with borderline personality disorder, they tend to suffer like unstable moods. They tend to be quite impulsive and they frequently lose their temper and they have these like explosive arguments. They can act in an extreme manner in the heat of the moment and sometimes they kind of blow up and then they regret their actions afterwards. I think there could also be elements of antisocial personality disorder. So in Rosenblum's case, there's evidence of other offending. So we know that she was done for a kidnapping more recently. And she also possibly has this kind of callous lack of empathy towards other people, disregarding the rights of other people. These are all features that Rosenblum showed. And I really think that the statement that Rosenblum made to Glennon's solicitors, which I mentioned before, is really telling because it showed me her own perception of being insulted in her mind seems to be far more important than Glennon's livelihood, her reputation, her well-being and her future. So to me, this shows a very high level of narcissism. So people with narcissistic personality disorder have these features as well as other features. So they have like an exaggerated sense of self-importance, they have a sense of entitlement and they require constant excessive admiration. They also have an unwillingness to recognise the needs and the feelings of other people. So we definitely see some of these things in Rosenblum. I think another huge factor which cannot be overstated in this case is Rosenblum's methamphetamine addiction. So to be honest, it's not really clear to me whether she was actually intoxicated at the time that she went online and, and made this post to the She's a Homewrecker website. But if she was then that certainly would have made her sort of more disinhibited, potentially agitated, and she might have been feeling more aggressive. On top of this, she might not have particularly cared about the consequences of her actions at that time. Now, moving on to Ryan Baxter, who we know is a stranger called Hannah Lupian. So she seemed to have a habit of compounding guilt of people who had been targeted on these kind of shaming websites. <clears throat> and I think you could even argue that Lupian's actions were more kind of cold and calculated. So Rosenblum appeared to have made one post out of anger and then forgotten about it. Whereas Lupian, her actions were more, they were more prolonged, more focused, and they actually took more effort. So she spent time contacting Glennon's bosses and Facebook contacts. There's not enough information available to me about Lupin's background to make any definitive comments on her personality. However, I do wonder why she's taken it upon herself to go out of her way to shame all these people and to like exacerbate their guilt. And I imagine there's a good possibility that something somewhere along the line happened to her previously, which has made her in her mind feel justified. So I wonder, was she maybe a victim? Did she experience infidelity herself? Or alternatively, has she got some strong, deep down buried feelings of guilt for whatever reason, and she's using the psychological defense mechanism of projection. So she's like projecting her own guilt onto others. So now turning to the victim, Glennon herself. Obviously, this scenario has damaged her in numerous aspects of her life. It's hurt her reputation, her current work, her future job prospects. I mean, she was falsely labelled as an adulterer. So I imagine this would have caused awkwardness, embarrassment in her, within her friends and her family and just it, within the whole community. And on top of all of that, she even feared for her safety at one point. So she believed due to the nature, the sexual nature of the false post, that certain creepy men might try to arrange viewings 
with the expectation of sex from her. And then this whole scenario must have been a massive drain on her time and also her finances. So she's reported to have spent over $100,000 on court fees. So I think these this kind of scenario has a potential for her to develop a psychiatric disorder. But obviously there are a lot of external factors such as the support system that she has and also her natural resilience. But I would not be surprised if she developed something like an adjustment disorder. So an adjustment disorder is a temporary stress-related condition where the sufferer feels like really anxious or depressed for a short period of time, but then sometimes, as may well happen in this case, down the line, it leads on to long-term depression. So to conclude, this case made me think about how damaging and unpredictable social media is and how little control we as individuals have over the action of strangers. It also made me reflect on the fact that Glennon had to spend so much money, $100,000 in court fees, just to repair her reputation. So obviously the average person would struggle to afford this. So it does kind of seem that richer victims in this situation would have a massive advantage. I also really want to emphasize that from the information available, it does seem like this whole scenario was driven by personality factors. You know, people, a people's sense of being insulted and entitled as opposed to something like mental illness. So uh, an alternative scenario might be somebody suffering from false delusions and posting material about Glennon that they believed to be true, but that's not what happened in this case. I do think it's important to distinguish the different mechanisms and where mental illness has or hasn't caused offending. And this actually reflects my caseload. So the vast majority of cases that I assess as a forensic psychiatrist for criminal trials are driven by personality disorders, personality issues, and substance use. And actually it's only a small minority that are driven by mental illness such as schizophrenia. So I talk about all these types of scenarios on my YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. You need to go check it out. I also talk about real life cases I have assessed. So I hope you enjoy that material. Until next time, stay euthymic. And I just wanted to say a big thank you for Josh for having me on your channel. Cheers. Thank you to Dr. Sahan for giving us your expert opinion on this case. Be sure to go check him out and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Thank you so much for watching this episode of my Curious Case series. I wanted to explore a case that didn't end with such tragedy as many others I've covered on this channel have done. So I thought this one would be a bit of a nicer, um, nicer case to talk about. And it's still really, really interesting. Um, be sure to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. My merchandise is still available on my store, joshuamiles.shop, with 10% of each purchase donated to the DNA Doe Project. We've got new notebooks in, um, we've got stickers still in, and we're still running the 15% sale on hoodies. So be sure to go check that out and grab yourself some merchandise. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members, especially my lead investigators, T. Vindiola, Samanthan O'Hara, Ash Medlock, Nikki, Nayla Earl, and Cicely Thomas. If you want to support this channel, my Patreon is in the description. From $1 a month, you get access to videos a day early without advertisements at all, access to my scripts, free stickers, and other fun stuff. Now there's no obligation at all to become a Patreon member, so please do not feel pressured at all to join. If you're not financially able to, my content will always be available for free right here on YouTube. <laughs>